obtain like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through... Yeah. Thanks. Okay, let's start over here. <laughs> First Peter 1 through 13. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappa Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance in incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory and at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you, love, whom ha having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of the time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Blame it on Craig. I got to preach both texts now tonight. <laughs> you did it, Craig. Good evening. Good evening. Good to see you all. Um, nice to be here. We're going to begin tonight um, a new teaching series. So I'm um, bubbling with excitement. Um, these are one of those things that uh, you notice I've been um, out of the pulpit on Sunday nights for about a month. And uh, so. For over a month, we've been studying and thinking about and preparing for this uh, sermon series. It's like, you know, filling up all with uh, uh, all the pressure and excitement of what's going into this. So hopefully it'll uh, spill out into something good for you. What we're going to do is um, actually this Sunday night series that we're going to finish with is going to take us through the end of 2015. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that we're going to preach a sermon, a, a series of lessons that are going to take us through October, November and December. And we're going to be done with 2015. That, that's hard for me to get my mind around, but it is true. And so uh, what we're going to do, the title of the series that I've given it is The Elect Exiles. And that's the phrase 
that Peter uses here in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, who he's writing to. He's writing to the elect exiles, those that are chosen of God, but experience life in the world as exiles, those that um, are in the world but do not belong to the world. And so what we're going to try to do uh, is get around the idea that Peter is getting at, and what we're going to try to tag on to is what he's teaching is the tension that exists for believers in Christ who live in the world and seek to answer the question of how do we live and engage with the world in which we live in? Um, how do we do that? Especially, how do we navigate a world and a culture that is not totally friendly towards Christianity? Um, it's probably no shock to you that we have decided it's important for us to take, a, uh, uh, take our time and study a text of the Bible that's going to teach us how to live in a world that is maybe less favorable towards Christianity, given the current situation of our social society. Um, all social commentators, whether they're believers in Christ or not believers, all of them are agreeing that the American culture is facing a seismic shift. And so what I want to do, if you'll uh, allow me just a few minutes of our time tonight to set aside, I want to build out a context for you to understand the framework of the foundation for our series of lessons about how we live as, ex as elect exiles. So it's going to take a few moments for me to try to lay the groundwork because so often in church and sometimes behind pulpits, the word culture and the word world oftentimes don't get really unpacked and explained in a very healthy or good way. And so I want to try to do my very best to explain that to you and then We'll see how we engage with that world. And so, as I was saying, all of the commentators on social issues, whether they are believers or not believers, are all agreeing across the board that there is a seismic shift taking place in American culture, especially in the West, you know, Western Europe and American culture, that it is becoming more and more increasingly less Christian and what they would call it as post-Christian society. Now, when I say post-Christian, do you understand what I mean by that? What I mean is that Christianity has come and had its time in our place, and now we are not on the front end of Christianity coming, but on the back end of Christianity being here. So if you go out and you talk to the modern secular person today, they say things like, yeah, I remember Christianity. That's back when women couldn't vote, right? That's when Christianity had its heyday. Or that's back when um, you know the races were segregated in our culture. But, but Christianity is like, long gone. It's antiquated. It's dated. It's old. And so, um, you know, the shift of our society has most certainly been happening as we're living in a post-Christian society. It may seem like in the last five years, you might even narrow that down to the last 24 months, literally 24 months, the American culture has increased its rate at which it is separating itself from Christian thinking or Christian worldview. Would you all agree with that? And it may seem like the problem is, you know, maybe five or ten years old, but I would suggest to you that a major foundational problem in American culture goes back more than just five years. It really goes back about 50 years. Um, the shift really started happening during the 1960s, during what was known as the sexual revolution. Um, it was at this time that the fundamental principle that really governed our culture started to change. You see, the collective spirit of our culture has always revolved around the idea of freedom. You know, we, we've always existed. That's sort of the American ideal. That's the collective hope of the American people. We, we love freedom. 
And for about 230 or 40 years, America um, sort of collectively defined freedom as not being withheld from the ability for the collective whole to pursue what is good for all of us. Like uh, the, the famous phrase goes, freedom and liberty for all. And so what we didn't want in our culture was anything, whether it be a king in England or even a domestic government, to stand in our way of a, of a whole collective being going together and saying, this is what is best for us. And so um, things like sacrifice and heroism have always been sort of highlights in the American culture because we've been saying, how do we as a people pursue what is best for us? Well, in about the 1960s, the subtle thing changed, and that is the definition of freedom. You see, freedom went from the statement being, we want to be liberated or free to pursue what is good for the whole. And now the definition, about the 60s when it started to change, was, who are you to tell me what I can do? That's the new definition of freedom. And that's really the mantra of our culture today. Would you agree? That, that the, the, over the landscape of American culture, we say, I have the right to my freedom. Who are you, individual, to tell me what I can do? And so I am free to do what I want. I'm free to pursue what I want to pursue. I'm free to live the way that I want to live. And so this is the spirit of our culture. And it's a spirit that each and every one of us, in our own right, must fight in us. We live in this culture, and we have to fight that culture. And so um, the concept of freedom, when it shifted... It has continued to sort of progress away from what I would call as a Christian worldview. And so, since that has taken place, you can see in just the last three or four years, the rate at which America, as a culture, is shifting from a Christian worldview is increasing rapidly. I mean, the, the, the rate is just increasing rapidly. So the question then is, what are we to do about that? Well, the church responded when the, when the shift started in the 1960s. About 15 years later, the church started to experience what was known as pluralism. Now, because the, the definition of freedom sort of shifted to, who are you to tell me what I can do? All of a sudden, pluralism was on the rise in our culture, meaning there are many answers to life's biggest questions. There are many ways that we can do things. There are many avenues to joy. And so as pluralism rise, the biggest challenge to Christianity was not nobody will listen to us, but there are competing voices. There are a lot of voices. Christianity wasn't kicked out of the public square, but in the public square of our culture, Christianity was just one of hundreds of voices that people could listen to. And so the church in about the 80s and 90s got together and said, you know, when I say church, I mean just generically, what are we going to do about this? And so at that time, Christianity made some moves. They decided that we need to become, for people to hear the message of the gospel, we've got to become incredibly relevant so that people will be attracted to us. And so what Christians did at that time is we started having, you know, Bible studies in coffee shops. You know, we started to buy MacBooks at a high rate so that people would think we're cool. And so we started to wear, you know, maybe um, more trendy clothing so that our, our worship services and our gatherings started to look much more comfortable and familiar to an outsider so that uh, we would gather the attention and then we would have their ear to speak to them. And so we became, tried very, very hard to be the highlight voice of the many voices in our culture. Well, even that is changing. Um, no longer is Christianity just uh, one of the many voices and an ignored voice. 
things are changing even amongst that in the last three or four years. There was a well-written piece about our current cultural situation by a man named Steve McElpine, and he said this. He said, um, considering uh, the idea that we're in now today, he said the culture is increasingly interested in bringing the church back into the public square, but this time not to hear her, but rather in order to fillet it, to expose its real and its alleged abuses, and render the church naked and shivering before a jeering crowd. What he's saying is, um, our culture is becoming less and less just commonplace with Christianity and more and more drawing Christianity back into the public square, not to give it a podium in which we would listen to Christianity, but really to expose Christianity and to attack Christianity. In fact, there are many people today who are not believers that are reaching in and grabbing Christian language and applying it back to Christians as if they are living in darkness or in evil or in wrong, the way that they view things. Do you see that? See, 25 years ago, what Christians had to have was humility. Today, what Christians have to have is courage. That's a real thing. And so why, why come to 1 Peter? Well, there's a reason that we have to come to 1 Peter. Um, our primary thought through all this series is going to be this. How does our faith in a resurrected Jesus call us to live in the world that we're living in today? In a culture that is less and less favorable to Christianity, how does our faith in Jesus Christ teach us to engage this world? How are we going to live in this world? And so Peter's going to start us off tonight with our foundation. So I ask the question then, um, what, why Peter? Why bring us to 1 Peter? You see, Peter lived in and was writing to Christians who were existing in a world that was incredibly similar to ours. Peter lived in a world, um, most assume it was late 60s, 70s AD, around that time. He lived in a world that was not dominated by Christian worldview. In fact, Christian thinking in Peter's world was a strange and kind of different kind of way of thinking. People rejected it often. There was worldview and thinking that was going on in Peter's world that was way different than Christianity. So Peter lived in that world. And um, in fact, Christians faced a lot of suffering because they saw the world differently than the rest of the people in their culture. They suffered for that. Now here's how Peter's also kind of similar to us. You see, at this time, um, sometimes it's falsely reported, but Peter, at the time that he was writing this, was not facing Roman-sanctioned um, state-sanctioned suffering. This, wasn't, this hadn't come to pass yet. This would be another probably 75 to 100 years before the Roman government would actually sanction the punishment of Christians. This was before that time. And so the suffering that they were facing was not state-oriented or state-demanded. It was local. It was communal. It was in their own community. People were thinking differently about ethics and morals and values than Christians. They were thinking differently. And so on a local level, there was a lot of suffering going on. Now, the second thing that makes Peter very much like us is not only that it wasn't yet state-sanctioned, but it also really wasn't physical yet. All of the language through 1 Peter doesn't really refer to a lot of physical suffering. In fact, the words he uses are things like reproach and shame, words like slander and lying. 
what the Christians were experiencing a lot of times was being left out of the culture that they lived in, was being lied about in the culture that they lived in. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, he says, you need to live an honorable life so that those who are in your community who say you are evil, by your good conduct will be proven wrong. Sound relevant today? That when people look at you as a Christian and say, your sexual ethic is just evil and wrong, that when they accuse you of being evil, your life, your moral conduct in your life, will be able to render that verdict inaccurate. That's what Peter was dealing with. So it wasn't yet state-sanctioned, and most of all, it wasn't really all that physical yet. It was reproach, shame, slander, and lies. And so in light of this, we've got to ask ourselves, what's Peter's message to us? Peter was dealing with the very same culture that we're in today. What's Peter's message to Christians when this is the world in which they live? Now, if you read along with Craig in verses 1 through 13, um, there, there's some really interesting general observations you can make. One in particular is this. If you really read through that first 13 verses, I want you to think about Peter's disposition, his attitude. How does Peter sound when you hear what he says? Look in verse 3. Blessed be God. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. Verse 8. Though now you not seen him, you love him. And you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 10, concerning the salvation, goes on to say we ought to be thankful. Verse 13, setting your hope fully on the gospel. What is Peter's tone of voice? What is his attitude? What's his disposition? I would tell you this, that what really stands out to me first and foremost is in writing and dealing with a culture that is hostile towards Christianity Peter is incredibly optimistic. Now, he's not blindly optimistic. He's not some pie-in-the-sky, fairy tale, everything's going to be all right, this is not going to hurt, because in actuality, he's very honest about the suffering that you're going to experience. But Peter has a deep, embedded optimism that is grounded in some reality that we're going to get to that I think we need to consider. Let me show you a few of them that he's just really grounded in, that Christianity shapes the way he thinks. First of all, Peter sees a purpose in the Christian placement in the world. Notice the language he uses and what he calls us. As I've mentioned already, Peter calls them the elect exiles who are of the dispersion. That matters. He's using very specific language on purpose. Elect meaning that we are chosen people of God, that God knows us, that we're part of God's family, that we are in, uh oh, <laughs> that we are, oh, <laughs> sound like it hurt, um, that we are those that are chosen of God, that we're the elect ones. But then he uses a word that has to do with the Jewish people calling the, the exiles. And that word, um, exile, doesn't just mean like what you automatically probably think, meaning like outcast. Um, it was actually a political term that was used in the first century, exiles. And what it meant was somebody who moved or transplanted from one place to another that didn't yet belong in that place, that was probably going to move on after a few years, but became a resident in that place. A better word to use that Peter would use is um, they were resident aliens. Meaning they were there, they had roots in the place, they belonged there, but they didn't belong there. Any of you move like to Ohio from a far away place away, maybe um, uh, it's kind of like that, right, Craig? So you're a transplant from West Virginia and you're here in Ohio and uh, it comes with a lot of extra uh, benefits maybe for you, but we'll leave that alone. <laughs> but in a lot of ways, um, leave it alone, <laughs> but in a lot of ways, 
being a resident alien means that you belong here, that you're one of us, but in a lot of ways you're still not like us. And so that was a common thing. And what Peter is saying, he's calling on a cultural term there, saying you are chosen of God and you are in a place to reside, but you belong somewhere else. Now look carefully about what he says. You see the optimism in what he's saying? Now he says you're elect exiles of the dispersion. Are you familiar with the word dispersion, the dysphoria? So in 586 is when Babylon came and conquered the southern kingdom, Judah. And they took the rest of the Jews that were there, many of them, and they took them back to the kingdom in, in uh, Babylon. And then the Persians took over and they, they displaced Jews all over the known world. That's what the Hebrews called the dispersion. Now, at that time, when Jews went throughout all the world and they wanted to continue to worship, they didn't have the temple, so they built things that were called synagogues. So all over the known world, there were Jewish people worshiping Jehovah in synagogues. That's called the dispersion. Now, they called it the dispersion because of this. The moment that Jesus Christ raises from the dead and 50 days later, Christianity is born. All of a sudden, missionary trips are taking off. And Paul, the apostle, who has all the credentials to be able to preach in synagogues, starts going around. And where does he go to spread Christianity? To all the synagogues. And so the Hebrews saw not just the punishment of God in Babylon, but the purpose. That God was setting up a way for Christianity to take off. That Paul would always go and find the synagogues who were in the dispersion, And when he would link up with them, he would preach to them and they would say, hi, I'm credentialed to be able to preach um, here in the synagogue. They say, okay, and he'd get up and be like, all right, let me tell you about Isaiah 53. It's really about Jesus. And he would convert them to Christianity. And so here's what Peter says. Christians, you're elect, you're in exile, but you're part of a dispersion. Meaning you are like a farmer scattering seed being sent out into the world to grow. Do you see the optimism of Peter in where you are and where you live? He, he knows that you're in the place that you're supposed to be. So Peter has optimism about your purpose and your placement. He sees a cause for great worship. Look in verse 3. The underlying tone of his voice is worship when he says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For what God has done for us, we ought to be people that worship. So Peter says, not only do we have a placement in this world, we ought to be people who worship God for what He's done, have deep gratitude. The, second, the third thing is, he sees suffering with a greater purpose. In verse 6, he says that you and I ought to rejoice, though now for a little while, if it even is necessary, we will suffer. But in that suffering... We will become refined, we will become purified, and we will become people who are ready to meet the Lord Jesus on the day that He returns. And so Christianity sees even our suffering has purpose. You know, Christianity is the only worldview and the only sort of religion or way of thinking that takes suffering and adds purpose to it in a way that has eternal ramifications. It's not just a, a, t a test of your toughness, but it actually is a sanctifying thing. And so Peter actually is optimistic about this. And finally, he has in verses 10 through 12, an immense amount of gratitude for his place in history. You notice he says concerning the salvation, I want you to think about the prophets who long before you ever came along were born, were lived, they lived, they served, and they died without ever seeing Jesus Christ. And they were serving you in this moment to have Jesus. 
Peter's thankful for the time in which he lives. He could have looked back on Hebrew history and said, man, wouldn't it have been nice to live under Solomon? All the wealth in the world, all of the countries around us being subdued under our power, wouldn't it have been so much better to live then? But he said, no, no, I have great gratitude for the time that I live right now because he saw the heritage that made it possible for him to live in the grace of God. Okay. Would these words mark your attitude towards the day, the age, and the time in which you live? Optimism, gratitude, purpose, settled understanding of what's going on? Or more accurately, would you see us maybe being described as people with a disposition of incredible fear? Maybe fury and rage. Perhaps even anxiety that cannot be appeased. How does Peter approach, from a Christian perspective, the time in which he's living? With real optimism. Okay, Peter knows something, and here's why. There's a word that is the underlying foundation of this text that you've got to get. Peter knows something about what gives human beings purpose, endurance, and life. And that word is hope. We all live with some kind of hope in us. One of the most profound things a person can ever do is reflect on what hope is really driving their life. See, most of us are driving forward, doing things, and we never really identified or pinpointed the hope that's in us that's driving us to do the things that we're doing. And so, hope is what drives us in all things in life. And there are many things that we have our hope in. Life goals and objectives are mainly the ones that drive us. But there is no hope in the world that can act, as Hebrews says, as an anchor to our soul except the Christian hope. And for Peter, the Christian hope is your foundation to exist in a world that is not favorable towards Christianity. In fact, I think that's why Peter would see a great benefit in living in the time in which he did, because the world in which he did revealed distinctly the Christian hope. Do you know what the Christian hope is? In a world that is selling hope all over, that is promising things left and right, can you in a few short sentences, articulate to yourself and to your neighbor what the distinct message of the Christian hope is. You see, I believe that on a side note, this is one of the great benefits that the church is going to experience in the next 5, 10, 15 years is a winnowing, a fan that's going to blow through, that's going to separate a lot of those that are not really invested in the Christian hope and those that are. We're going to find out what the real Christian hope is, and you and I have to be able to articulate the Christian hope. Now, this text tells you uh, a few things. First of all, it tells you the nature of this hope. It tells you the purpose or the aim of the hope, and it's going to tell us the source. And let's try to breeze through those, and we'll be done. Let's look at the nature of this hope. Look down in verse 3. The Christian hope is your only foundation for engaging the world today. And here's what he says in verse 3 about that. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Born again to a living hope. There's two metaphors being used here to really bring to light some truths about the nature of the Christian hope. First of all, he says it's born again. 
The Christian hope is not just a simple intellectual exercise. In fact, I could sit down with, a, with any of us, anybody outside, and explain the basic tenets of Christianity. What we do on Sunday, the reason we do the certain things that we do, what we believe, and you could intellectually transfer everything that has to do with Christianity to somebody else, even in a way that they could explain it back to you. But the Christian hope is not just an intellectual agreement. He says it's something that's born inside of you. It's something that must come alive. It must be born in us. And something that is born in you takes time to grow. You see, he's going to carry this metaphor through into chapter 2, but think about for a moment something that is born. Um, You know, Lisa and I are getting ready to have our third child, and that baby is going to be born. And when that baby comes out, what is that baby going to be able to do on its own except make a mess and scream? Nothing, right? Say mom. Here, mom. What would that baby understand about his or her world? Would that baby be able to explain how it exists, what it's doing, what's going on in the world? Would that baby be able to do all of that? You see, what, Paul, what Peter's trying to do for you is he's trying to draw a picture that says the Christian hope is something that is born in us, but it's born new, meaning when it's there, it's not automatically mature. It's not automatically understood. And so it takes time to grow. In fact, in chapter 2, he's going to tell you to nourish that hope. You've got to supply that hope. You've got to feed that hope so that it will grow up into some maturity. So as we're sitting here tonight, if you believe in the Christian message, the Christian hope, but you can't really articulate it yet, that's okay. That means that it's born, it's new, but it's got to grow. The Christian hope is a born-again type of thing. Then the second thing is, it's living. The Christian hope is an independent entity, meaning it's alive on its own. Whether tonight you have it or not, or you believe in it or not, does not determine whether it lives or dies. You see, there's not another hope in the world that you can have that stands completely independent of all of life and still is alive. It's a living hope. All of your hopes, think about it for a moment. Maybe you have a hope in a career, or maybe you have a hope in building a home, or maybe you have a hope in raising a family that is successful and and beautiful. Maybe you have a hope in doing... All of those hopes are incredibly dependent upon circumstances, timing, other people's decisions, your preparedness, and your performance. And if any of those circumstances don't go correctly, they fall apart. You might be the most qualified person, prepared to take the next step in your job to have a, maybe um, uh, you know, a raise and, and a promotion, and you're ready for that, and you've got all your hope that that's the job that you want. Maybe that's in front of you, and somebody else comes along who's more qualified and they get that job. You see, that's not a living hope. That's a hope that's dependent upon other things to keep it alive, and it can fall apart at any minute. The Christian hope lives. It's alive. It's independent of you and I, meaning that it is fixed, it is unchanging, and it cannot be destroyed. There is no hope in the world that exists beyond us except for the Christian hope. And it exists, that means it cannot be changed. So that's its nature. It's born in us. It's a living thing. But let's look at its aim. You see, three times in this text, he speaks of something to be revealed, a future tense. He's talking about what's to come or what's ahead of us. And so he's specifically saying that we are hoping in something to come. Now, what is that? There's two main things. In verse 4, he says that we are hoping for an inheritance that is 
imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is reserved or kept in heaven for us. You see, the first thing we're hoping for in the Christian hope, this is the definition of the Christian hope, is a perfect place. That word inheritance was the Jewish word that they used to describe the land of Canaan that was promised to Abraham. When he was there, they thought about their inheritance. They knew they were coming for it. And so Peter is playing off the idea that there is an inheritance for us. But this inheritance will not fade, will not perish, will not crumble, will not be taken away from us. Think about the Jews that he's writing to that would be reading this saying, yeah, but I don't live in the inheritance. He says there is an inheritance. There's a land. There's a perfect place that is coming. This word is something that is describing a place that is promised to us. A place where all the wrongs will be made right. All the brokenness will be healed. All of the injustice will soon become just. It is a promise of a place where things will not be broken anymore. That's the first promise of the Christian hope. That we are going to a place that is perfect. Now the second one is this, verse 6 and 7. When he talks about the suffering that we're going to face. It's not just a perfect place but a perfect person, a perfect us. Look at the end of verse 6. In verse 6, he says, our suffering has a purpose. It's refining us, just like the process of gold being refined. And so gold goes through fire, it gets the impurities out of it, it becomes a valuable thing. And he says in verse 7, that the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, though perishes through tested by fire, may be found to result in something. Meaning your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ will bring a result to you. The object of this verse here, this sentence, is you and your faith. And it has a conclusion to it. And he says the ending of that is that we will be people ready to receive praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ comes. You remember the uh, parable of the talents, the three men that were given talents? Two of them used them well, one of them did not. The two that used them well, what did they hear from their master when he came back? What were the words? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You know, deep inside all of us is a desire to hear somebody outside of us say, well done. I approve of you. Who you are is worthy. But the thing that all humanity has but doesn't acknowledge is the reality that we're not worthy to hear that yet. In fact, that's the purpose of the Christian life is to be sanctifying us to the very end when he says in 1 John 3 that when Jesus returns, we don't know what we'll be like, but we do know this, that we will finally become like him in all of his perfection. We will finally become people who are not just existing in a perfect place, but people that finally are restored to our perfection. That is the central message of the Christian hope, that we believe in the promise of a place that is to come that is perfect where all wrongs will be right, and we will become people where all of our wrongs finally become right. You see, actually, these two things drive, actually, all of the lesser hopes in this world. The perfect place hope drives us to build wells in Africa or eradicate hunger or fix our schools. We don't want injustice in our world anymore. Christian or not Christian, you see people are frustrated with a world that is not just. And a perfect person drives hopes as well. How many self-help books exist on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble? It's something like 1.4 million books on Amazon.com right now for self-help. Nine steps to lose weight, six steps to get rich, four steps to make friends. All these self-help books are trying to solve the inner desire for us to not be imperfect anymore. 
And the Christian hope is this promise, that we're coming to a perfect place, and we too will be perfect in that place. How we know that it's true? What's the source? Let me give you this. I appreciate your patience. Look in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Through the resurrection. Where does this hope come from? That there will be a perfect place. I can believe in it with all certainty and that I will be raised to perfection. How can I believe in that? Was the single historical act that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Now what I'm finding... As a side note, one of the great benefits of Christianity sort of facing a challenge in our culture is that we're having to explain a lot of the doctrines that we've assumed for many years. I talk to a lot of Christians who, um, are, they, they believe in Christ, they go to church, they're kind of in on the Christian scene. But if you ask them to articulate, like, why do you believe in the resurrection? They, they really can't do it. Do you believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a man who was bodily dead, is now bodily alive, really happened? Do you believe that? It's a serious question. In fact, if it's not true, we should go home because this is a sham. This is all just a social experiment. If the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, we should go home. This is a joke. Do you believe that it happened? Why do you believe it? I want to give you just some reasons because I think you need to dwell on that. In fact, dwelling on the resurrection is the thing that nourishes your baby infant hope in you that we're going to a perfect place and we'll be perfect people someday. Here are three things that I believe that give us great verification that the resurrection of Jesus Christ historically happened. First of all, the witnesses of His death. The Bible is very explicit about who witnessed the death of Jesus. In fact, um, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent figure, was named both with his name and where he's from. Meaning, people that were receiving the Gospels would have read that and said, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, asked for the dead body of Jesus, wrapped the dead body in linens, and put the dead body in his tomb. So what that means is people that were reading that said, you know what, I'm going to go ask Joe. Where is he? That would be, that would be like me saying... Tim from Carol, Carol, right? I mean, technically, saw the dead body of Jesus. And you read that and say, you know what? I'm going to ask Tim. The fact that the gospel writers put his name and where he's from says that they have no fear of you going to ask Joseph of Arimathea if he was dead. No fear of that. That stands up to historical criticism in all secular writings. That would verify itself as a fact. Secondly, the Roman centurion verified that he was dead. Now, this man had no skin in the game, and he was a trained person to know who was dead and who was alive. And he went out as assigned by Pilate and said, came back and said, I don't need to break his legs, he's dead. And then Pilate also legally declared him to be dead. All three of these people are written in the Gospels, so you could go back and check records, you could ask people, was Jesus dead? And they say, he was dead. Okay. The witnesses of his death. The second thing is the witnesses of his resurrection. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 that there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people that saw the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. They recognized him. He was with them. They saw him eat. They touched his hands. They looked at Jesus Christ and he was resurrected. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, people are named. So if you didn't believe it, you could go knock on somebody's door and say, Hey, did you really see a resurrected Jesus? Was he really alive? Now, the second thing that really verifies this, the witnesses of his resurrection, is, do you know who the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were? Do you remember? You can tell me. 
Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. Now, why is that important? Why would, the, why would the writers of the Gospels include that? You see, in the first century, if you were to take this case to court to try to prove that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and you were going to call your star witnesses who saw it happen, and you called a woman who saw it, the, course would, the court would dismiss the case because a woman's testimony could not be received in a court of law. It just couldn't be received. Um, not that I like the way that that culture was, but a woman's testimony was not able to be verified. They could not accept it. And so what would be the benefit if Jesus Christ died and some disciples wanted to spin a story that he was alive, but he wasn't alive? What would be the benefit, in including women as the first witnesses of his resurrection? It would hurt their case. The only reason to include it is that it happened. That was true. So you've got the witnesses of his death, the witnesses of his resurrection, but you've got, I believe, one of the most powerful reasons, the transformation of his disciples. You've got roughly about 100 people who are cowardly, afraid, not sure what to do, denying him the night, that night, you know, running and scattering. And then all of a sudden they see a man who is not dead anymore, and they could care less what the most powerful people in the world would do to them. In fact, the number of people who saw the resurrected Jesus who walked peacefully to their death is astounding. Jesus didn't go to his death as peaceful as his disciples. Do you believe the resurrection? That it happened? You see, the resurrection, personally, what it means for us is that you can be sure that your sin is paid for. Jesus Christ, who made the payment for your sin, went into the grave, and when the payment was made, He walked out of the grave. Just like if you were sentenced to a year in prison, and after that year was over, you walked out of that jail, you can know that your sin has been paid for. And you can know that on that Sunday, that Lord's Day, that God took a broken and dead body and gave it life and healed that thing, that there will be another Lord's Day coming when God will take all things broken and all things mangled and all things hurt and make them right again. That's what the resurrection promises, that there is coming a day when there will be a perfect place and a perfect person. The resurrection of Jesus Christ should give you the foundation of hope to stabilize you in a world that is constantly shifting away from a Christian message. And we're going to continue to learn what Peter says through the rest of this year about how we engage with a society that is no longer Christian. There's one last story I'm going to tell you. We'll be done. If you're having trouble with the resurrection, let me tell you the story about the two women um, that came to the tomb. It was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They came to the tomb and they looked into it and they saw it was completely empty. And they were worried about what to do. And so they were sent to go back and tell Peter and the rest of the disciples that Jesus was risen. And they looked into an empty space and saw void and started walking down the path. And as they were walking down the journey, it says that they had both fear and joy. You see, I think those two ladies start their journey just like we start our journey. Oftentimes we become Christians because we're staring into space, into void, into nothingness. Because we have nothing, or we're living with nothing, or we fear nothing, and there's nothing there. And we start journeying when we have both fear and we have joy. Not sure what we're doing, but we'll walk. And while they're walking that road, sometime later they run into Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And they know it's actually Him, and they know He's alive. And they fall at His feet, and they begin to worship Him. And Jesus says this, don't be afraid. He left them with their joy, but he took their fear. You see, as you walk this road, having both fear and joy, 
Keep going on this road and nurture that small amount of faith that has hope in you so that someday when you understand that Jesus Christ really is raised from the dead, he will take that fear from you and leave you with joy. So you can have the certainty to face this world we live in. Uh, If you need help tonight, we're here. You can come as we stand and sing.